You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to uh, this new episode of the Interactome. Uh, we have some interesting things that we want to share with you today. And But first, uh, first and foremost, I want to introduce one of our members. She's been uh, working behind the scenes kind of to keep our social media going and helping and guiding our content and our, our messaging, uh, Natalie DiDomenico. She's a good friend of mine. Uh, and we're just really happy to kind of bring her out into the spotlight to talk a bit about uh, some of her experience. Uh, she's been very familiar with this, uh, or has unique experience with this uh, topic that we want to talk about today, PCR, or polymerase chain reaction. Uh, we'll get into that a little, or what it is, into what it is a little more soon, but I think everyone should uh, introduce themselves a little bit, starting with Natalie. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to meet you through your headphones or your car or however you are listening to this. Um, little background on me. So I met Joe through undergrad. We were both um, majors. He was a biochemistry major. I majored in microbiology and journalism with a focus in science writing. So science communication is the career path angle I like to take. But before I realized that, I wanted to see if lab work would be for me. So I joined a insect virology lab, soon realized it, uh, it wasn't my wheelhouse, wasn't quite for me, but I took a lot of really valuable experience away from it. And one of those experiences I had was doing a lot of PCR. So a lot of the polymerase chain reaction, those tests that need to be run on COVID results, you know, that, that, you know, I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, we'll talk about that later, but thought it'd be a good idea for me to jump on this episode and, and give a little bit of my background. Yeah, and uh, I'm Sam. I've been on a few previous episodes. I am a biochemistry PhD student. And uh, probably, I mean, I've done a lot of PCR too. I think most people in the biological sciences have done it once or twice. Um, perhaps most relevant to everyone here, though, is um, that tomorrow morning, I'm going to have to shove a swab up my nose to take a PCR sample because uh, school makes me do that. Um, and I think most of us have had a similar experience recently with the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, it's a relevant topic. It has been for a while, but I also think that PCR has been relevant in the biological sciences since, well, pretty much when it was invented. And we were solving problems using PCR uh, prob probably at least three decades now. Um, mm -hmm. So longer than uh, we have been alive, uh, <laughs> us young scientists. Um, although... I'm certain that we will have guests or people on here who will remember the bad old days before we had tools like PCR. <laughs> uh, maybe we should tell our listeners a bit about uh, what PCR actually is. Um, I don't know who here wants to take that, um, but probably. I think that's definitely where we should start. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we've, we've kind of uh, held it off long enough, <laughs> but um, 
in its simplest sense, PCR is just a DNA uh, photocopier. It just takes a DNA sample and makes uh, millions and millions of copies of it in a relatively short amount of time, which is great because you're not always going to get a ton of DNA out of a sample. Uh, we're not getting all that much volume out of me swabbing my nose, I hope. That would be disgusting. And also, actually, probably not all that good in terms of data. Um, but uh, that does not stop uh, science from being able to be done on small samples, mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of information in even just a single strand of DNA. Oh, yeah. And um, do you guys know how it was discovered? Like, who, who came up with it? Um, I know a little bit about the story, um, but I, I think... Uh, Sam, you may also be a little more familiar with this. Oh, oh I, I didn't want to go down this rabbit hole too far. The characters involved are uh, a bit colorful for an episode on a scientific technique, mm -hmm. I would say. I think they could fill up several episodes of their own. Um, and uh, there's some stories in there, some good, some not so good. Um, but the, the main discoverer, I would say, uh, has made some questionable decisions. But um, the... Yeah, I think the, the key component of PCR, though, is a very special protein. Um, well, family of proteins that allows us to actually copy DNA. Um, and we all have uh, DNA copying proteins in our bodies. Uh, every one of our cells, or I should say most of our cells, have DNA in them. And in order to make more cells, you need more DNA. So every living organism has DNA copying machinery in it. Uh, so that's not particularly unique. So I guess the question then that comes up is, why wasn't this something that was going on from the discovery of DNA? DNA was discovered, I believe, in the 1950s. And so it took a solid 20, 30 years before we were able to actually copy it in a lab environment. And so I think the real key component of that is something that I think uh, Joe would like to talk about. He's been alluding to, um, and that's that special copying protein. Yeah, actually, I think uh, Natalie has uh, a bit of a story on this. Uh, this was something off, 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 off our off, off camera, if you will. This was something that we we're both very excited about. Uh, so, Natalie, the floor is yours. Thank you. So, as I mentioned, I have a background in microbiology. So, I'm fascinated by singular cell organisms, how they work, um, especially in environments that aren't necessarily suitable at all for humans. So I did a little research on an enzyme called TAC polymerase, and a polymerase itself is an enzyme that is very important for copying DNA. You need a polymerase to make DNA copies. And mammals don't have TAC polymerase. TAC polymerase was discovered in 1969 by scientists, and I don't want to butcher their names, Thomas Brock and Hudson Freeze in oh. the Yellowstone National Park air vents. They, Wait, what? Mm -hmm, they oh found, my gosh, that's so cool. They found a thermophilic bacteria, so mm -hmm. bacteria that thrives in hot springs that needs really, really hot air, or not hot mm -hmm. air, but a hot um, environment to survive, yeah. um, called, I believe it was called, I'm checking my notes here. Thermus aquaticus, aquaticus, thermus. Aquaticus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that thermophilus aquaticus, it, something like that. Is thermus aquaticus is that a bacteria or archaea? Bacteria. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I won't I won't confuse the listeners with that too much, but archaea are different than bacteria. I actually worked with them for a little bit, so I'm like always like, ooh, are we gonna talk about archaea? No, no and that's a great not. question too because 
um, archaea tend to live in those extreme environments like this one type of bacteria does. You find, you know, I'm not going to go on a tangent, but um, they isolated this DNA polymerase from this one bacteria. And the reason you need this one specific polymerase is because it can withstand heat temperatures up to 80 degrees Celsius, which is approximately 176 degrees Fahrenheit. So any of our DNAs, any, any machinery in our cells would denature. It wouldn't work. And in PCRs, to make all those copies that you need, the system gets really heated up. Um, everything goes really fast and there's a lot of energy. And in, with other polymerases, these would fall apart. But the TAC polymerase is special and makes this DNA amplification possible. So I remember first time I heard about that, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. So that's a little bit on tack polymerase. Yeah, so so we don't need to heat it up though to make it just go fast, right? So so uh, chemistry steps in general tend to go faster when there's more heat. Um, well, a lot of them do. So like, for example, uh, you know, if you wanna, the very simple, very, very simple examples like, oh, you wanna like, you know, cook something, it will cook faster at a higher temperature, right? There are reactions happening that make food cook. But that's actually not what's happening here, right? It's not just that faster, like hotter means faster, right? Um, actually, what we're trying to do is make it so that TAC polymerase can get to the DNA. Um, so in order for uh, anything to be able to access DNA, it has to get unzipped. And there are uh, special proteins that will do this in humans, for example, because we need to copy our DNA too, uh, called helicases. But these sorts of systems are really complicated. Uh, and when you're trying to put something together in a test tube or a little tiny tube, it's like we use smaller tubes in a test tube that you're picturing. But um, the in order to get these done in a lab environment in general, you don't want to have a big complicated system. You want something that's like three pieces and they are relatively robust and you don't have to think about them. And so what happens is instead of using helicase to unzip our DNA, we just heat it up. And when it gets too hot, the relatively weak bonds that hold the two different strands of DNA together just kind of melt apart. And then um, when they are separate, then the TAC can bind onto it and just start copying away. Yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, the uh, the other thing I think uh, to that's important to share with our listeners is how far this this technology sounds kind of simple. And once we made all these discoveries, it became relatively simple. But um, in the early days of uh, using this technique. And you actually have to do like multiple different like temperatures to kind of control like whether the the DNA is going to break apart or like stick back together. Because after you've made the these copies, you actually have to like cool down the temperature a little bit. Um, and so um, when you're cycling back and forth between hotter temperatures and colder temperatures, um, originally they were doing this by taking their samples and moving them to different water baths at different temperatures. And so you'd have to like sit there for, or be there for like hours on end, kind of just like moving what, like this one or like a few samples from like water bath to water bath. And that's super, super difficult and uh, time consuming. And so uh, over time, we've developed these cool little machines that are specifically designed to um, con like control the temperature of these PCR tubes that all these reactions in. They're called thermocyclers because they change the temperature over multiple different cycles. And uh, it's just, 
um, I think scientists today don't necessarily uh, appreciate the that we're not um, running back and forth the water baths all the time. We kind of just stick it in a it'll like stick our tube once we mix all our like our DNA of interest and our our uh, our polymerase and our like our water and primers. We could talk about primers a little bit later. Um, like we kind of just hit go and that's it. Uh, but um, back in the early days, there was a lot more to it than that. Have it, none of us have actually had to do the water bath thing, right? No one, no, no one has hazed no, us by doing that. No, that that's that's almost a shame. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I would enjoy doing that once and then never doing it again. Yeah. I think Joe, uh-huh. you bring up an important point too that you know science has come so far from going from water baths from you know very different temperatures to each other. I think it's also important to highlight that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the mm-hmm. error rate then of the PCR is probably significantly dropped. And using thermocyclers, which again we'll talk about a little bit more later, I feel like that must have made PCR and just this whole um, this whole technique so much more accurate. And again, either of you, please correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. Oh yeah, you're you're 100 oh, yeah, percent correct. I, I actually interned at one of the companies that designs polymerases. Um, and uh, one of, I would say, I, I, just because I want to uh, toot my own horn, I would say it's considered one of the best companies that design polymerases. Um, and uh, they, uh, they definitely put a lot of effort into making the error rate go down because uh, especially if you're a company like that, I mean, you've got a lot of competition these days for those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But also uh, just being able to, have fewer errors means that when I go to do some simple DNA cloning, which I guess to the non-scientist sounds impressive, but it's really boring. Um, uh, you you really don't want to have all these mistakes and uh, in your uh, cloning process, and so that that has gone down. I've heard that the original TAC polymerase polymerase is just absolute garbage. It will make an error like once every like one thousand DNA bases or something, which is not enough to cover say the genes I'm working with. So you can imagine when you're working on proteins and things where you're like, ah, yes, I would like to have this very specific little mutation here and nothing else wrong with it. Well, you can't really do that if your error rate's so high. Uh, turns out yanking the protein straight out of uh, Thermus aquaticus is not a great way to get a really efficient uh, enzyme optimized for the lab because apparently test tubes are very different than being inside a bacteria. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there certainly are people who still do use TAC polymerase, and that was what was used for a long time. But now we're slowly starting to, um, I mean, in, in the last, like, I'd say probably in like 15, 20 years or so, like we started to develop other enzymes also from, like originally derived from a similar, like heat-loving bacteria um, that are have a little bit of a better uh, what, proofreading rate. Uh, if you will, instead of like making an error one every thousand base pairs in like or every, one every thousand rungs of ladder in the DNA, it might be like one every ten thousand um, or things like that. So we, we're we're making progress in that area too. Um, and, yeah, and I think it's good to point out that in biology, nothing's perfect. Like nobody's perfect. Yeah. So every one of these things has an error rate. Um, we all, uh, I mean, that that's how mutations happen in humans. Uh, that could do things like give you cancer or just like a funny bowl or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, I mean, like natural selection depends on having stuff to select on. So we do need a mutation rate uh, in nature just for the way that, you know, new species and things come into existence. So yeah. it's it's not just a matter of 
in nature, it's not just a matter of copying DNA perfectly, but it's also being wrong just enough times to be successful. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Sam, going back to the point that you made earlier about PCR being used to amplify genetic material in a given sample um, by millions of copies, I think that's an important point when we're looking at COVID testing and why PCR is the gold standard for COVID testing. Yeah, I mean, PCR in general is the gold standard for seeing uh, like any any genetic material whatsoever. So in the case of coronavirus, we actually have RNA, not DNA. So that's something that like we're going to have to discuss in a second of how we can actually turn that into DNA to actually detect. I believe that's what we do. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But I mean, we, we also, PCR has a whole bunch of other uses I think we can get into after we talk about COVID. Um, uh, I mean, I've even heard of it being used to determine whether or not uh, uh, Subway tuna is actually tuna. Uh, there's a big debate over this. Yeah, it's a whole me? thing. It's a whole thing. There's a there's a goofy podcast that got really into this recently. Not goofy. They they they're they have far more listeners than we do, so they clearly know what they're doing. But um, I think well, this has to kind of be contrasted to something else. And in the case of COVID testing, uh, the contrast is uh, at least according to the file I have up here from a Wikipedia, it's a lateral flow assay. So the idea is that you take uh, your sample that you're looking for. You have it run along a piece of paper, it runs into a bunch of antibodies that sticks onto it, and then it also sticks on antibodies that stick it onto the sheet of paper. So you kind of make a sandwich that's glued down to the sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've got your, uh, say, your COVID virus in this case, you kind of make a little antibody sandwich, and there's a colorful bit on the top of it uh, that kind of tells you, hey, this is here. And you can just look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's COVID. Um But the thing is, you still have to have enough of it to see it. So those antibodies might only stick to like each uh, virus, like, I don't know, 20, 30 times if you're lucky. I'm totally guesstimating here. But when, if you think about 20 or 30 molecules of dye, um, you're not going to be able to see that. If you're thinking about like, I mean, if you try to picture that, that's going to be like a spot, like, you know, that's smaller than the head of a pin. You're not going to notice that much red dye. And instead, um, you have a, you have to have enough virus to have these antibodies stick to it. Um, whereas PCR can copy the virus uh, genetic material a bajillion times. And so even the smallest amount will get copied and copied and copied until you have like millions or billions or trillions of copies, depending on how many times you run it. Um, I'm actually not sure that there's a ceiling to PCR. I think it just depends on how much material is in the tube and how many times you cycle it hot, cold. Every time it does, it makes one copy and then the copies get copied and there's copies of the copies of the copies. So every cycle it's you know it's just two times two times two times two just you know it's exponential um so you know you can end up with like you know two to the 30 second which is some gigantic unimaginably large number (laughs) um i'm not going to bother to do the math uh but uh just trust me that it's big yeah and just more than tens of dye molecules for example yeah, I actually think uh, there in some cases, like usually there will be a ceiling. Um, the reason being that um, you will eventually run out of the building blocks for the, the DNA and the PCR reaction. So um, you have uh, in, the- in theory, you will. I mean, like, I don't think like anyone. Can, can you will. just can you just get a bigger tube? You, you, you can't get a bigger tube. You can put more 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 building blocks in. But let's say you just like start off with like, 
your set amount of like building blocks. We call them uh, nucleotides. They're basically like pieces of the rung of the ladder. Um, those you have to include in your PCR reaction too, because you need uh, these building blocks of DNA for the uh, your polymerase um, to actually make a copy of your DNA in the first place. Or if you're feeling real creative, like I was the first few times, I, I, a couple of the first times I did it, just forget to put them in all together, and then you end up with a really easily quantifiable number of copies, which is one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't forget, don't forget your nucleotides. <laughs> it's, it's not a hard, it's not a hard protocol to do, but uh, you forget that, you get nothing. Yeah. The other thing, kind of, kind of going back to COVID testing, I think one question our listeners might be thinking of is. Well, if it just copies DNA, how can you tell if there's virus DNA? Like, what if there's human DNA in the sample and you just get, like, or, like, in this case, like, coronaviruses have RNA, kind of. So I I think it, like, it's a little, I think there's a few little uh, pieces of this puzzle that we still need to share a little bit. And so the first thing um, that helps differentiate, like, one type of genetic material from another or show how, that you have a specific kind of genetic material in your sample is this thing called primers. And these are actually, like, little small sequences of um, DNA that um, will actually, like, when you, as Sam mentioned earlier, kind of uh, break apart your original strand of DNA by heating it up. These little pieces of DNA will actually go and like stick onto the strands that you've already separated. And they actually um, mark the starting point for the polymerase because polymerase needs to bind to double-stranded DNA. And so it binds to the, the polymerase will bind to this little region of double-stranded DNA where the primer is and kind of like zip along your, uh, your single-strand of DNA and uh, eventually keep building another double-strand. Um, so... That's kind of actually how um, you can differentiate between like DNA, uh, like if you have multiple types of DNA in a sample, um, you can differentiate like, or actually show like you have this specific kind. Um, but for this whole PCR reaction with viruses and COVID testing, there, um, this is just between DNA and DNA. Um, what we have to do first is convert the RNA that coronaviruses have into DNA using a special so, enzyme. So- oh, go ahead, Sam. Before we go there, I think just to yeah. summarize things, because I think you, you just... You, that was a lot. I, I think just to... Yeah. Yeah, so there was yeah. a lot of information to process. So before we go into how we actually look at RNA, I think that the most important thing you have to know about a primer is it's just a signal to the polymerase and everything else in there. You have to start here. And so, um, you know, it's like step one. It's it's And uh, the polymerase doesn't know anything. It's just an enzyme. But if you, don't, if you don't tell something where to start, it doesn't start at all. And so that's how you get a negative... PCR COVID test, for example, Mm -hmm. is there is nowhere to start. And so you never get a copy. Uh, And that's really all primer does is it just tells us where to start. Yeah. So, so primers are very, very important in a PCR reaction. Um, And so going back to what I was mentioning about like RNA, um, since like when you get a COVID test, you're looking for a virus that doesn't actually have any DNA in it, just RNA. Um, You have to do this thing before you can even do a PCR called a reverse transcriptase reaction. So um, this is a enzyme that has, this reverse transcriptase is an enzyme that's actually derived from viruses. And it can take um, RNA um, and convert it into DNA. Um, So usually what we have to do is actually take your, your sample that in theory has virus, treat it with this reverse transcriptase to turn any viral RNA into DNA, and then use 
primers and a normal PCR reaction to make copies of this new DNA that has been made by the reverse transcriptase. Um, yeah, and I think that that kind of just just the name reverse transcriptase implies that there is a transcriptase, and yeah. so uh, typically when we talk about DNA and RNA, uh, for those of you who are relatively new to these terms, I mean DNA mm -hmm. is like our master copy of genetic information, and RNA is kind of like just the throwaway notes that um, the cell uses to actually do stuff. So it's like, you know, it's like you write them a little sticky note for the cell to go bake something, it throws it away, whatever. Um, but you can actually reverse from that into DNA. Um, and there are some particularly nasty viruses that will do this, but it turns out that this is also useful in the lab because we want to be able to turn RNA uh, into something that we can work with that's more stable and uh, fits in with our DNA-centric uh, workflow. Because um, when you're in a lab, you're mostly thinking about DNA. I've never worked with RNA, for example. Um, although, I guess, with the uh, mRNA vaccines, which are just a form of RNA, uh, that'll probably become more common. People will probably be messing with RNA a lot more. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I think maybe we should chat a bit more. Now, now that we've talked a bit about COVID testing and how it works, basically, you have your, your RNA from the virus, that RNA gets converted into DNA by reverse transcriptase, and then that DNA is copied many times by PCR. And if you actually see that there's a lot of DNA there, then you know that you had virus initially. And if you don't see DNA, uh, in theory at least, there was no virus. Um, so yeah, maybe we should chat about some other things that PCR can do. Oh yeah, Be because PCR, the, I would say, this is this is a relatively... The COVID testing is the thing everyone knows about, but that is not like necessarily what uh, PCR has been used for the most throughout its history. Um, I mean, obviously, it hasn't been used to run COVID tests throughout most of its history because COVID didn't even exist, you know, four years ago. Um, so, uh, well, at least not in its current forms. Yeah. Um, one, so, one thing that I uh, found out that I was super interested in that I actually didn't know PCR can be used in paternal testing. So my mm -hmm. mind immediately goes to the Maury show and all the announcements <laughs> of you are or you are not the father. They're doing, mm -hmm. they've got a whole PCR lab in the back. No, I'm just kidding. They, they probably don't, but that's they what could. I think of. Like, <laughs> so there's a they, lot they of could. Really hard. practical applications, um, including like cloning, genotyping, sequencing. Okay. We're not we're not getting all attack of the clones up in here though. I think I think we need to define what's going on with cloning because because we're not we're not making an army of Boba Fett clones over here to take over the. We're not. <laughs> I've been watching I've been watching way too much Star Wars lately. Um, no, we're uh, we just talk about cloning when we talk about really making copies of any genes, right? So PCR I think inherently gets referred to as cloning, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you can talk about that a little bit more. But, like, I, I do cloning. I've done cloning before. I'm making copies of the protein I work with in a lab, and I could, like, absolutely bore, bore your eyeballs off talking about it. But it's not a, it's not particularly, um, it's not, like, cloning is not this particularly interesting sci-fi thing most of the time. We're not making whole organisms. We're tricking bacteria into making things they're not supposed to or mm -hmm. making copies of mm -hmm. bacterial things. It usually tends to be on a level where you're just dealing with tricking some foul smelling sludge into doing something else and sam correct me if i'm wrong but if you're doing cloning you then use pcr to make sure that it's uh that the cloning worked right you use you use it to sequence the do... genome that's one thing i did in... oh oh yeah yeah you're right yeah we copy genes in 
in in bacteria as cloning. Uh, you're right. I, I I don't even know what we refer to as cloning or not. I'm not a molecular biologist. I do it, but I don't know half the names for this stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one way um, PCR can be used in cloning is just like fact checking your work, right? You do all this amazing um, work with your bacteria or trying to make them, like you said, do all these things they're not supposed to do. Like um, an example could be you want them to be fluorescent. You want them to uh, take up this one gene to glow. You want glowing bacteria. And if you couldn't say by chance, you couldn't test that by just looking at it, you can then take that genome and, and do a PCR on it and compare it with other samples to yeah. see if your bacteria then did uptake that gene. Yeah. I mean, another thing we use PCR for, though, is also like you take that primer, you actually make the primer slightly different than the gene you're copying, and so you can introduce mutations. Um, and so that's what I do regularly. So you take your primer, which, you know, will be like 20 or 30 DNA bases long, you change like three of those, it still sticks because that's how it works. I mean, it, sometimes it doesn't and you're unlucky. Um, uh, and, but then I can use that to like make mutants of the protein that I'm uh, working on, which again are super useful for me in a lab. I mean, these mutants are, again, it's not that exciting. I'm changing a couple DNA bases and usually I just break the thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I break it new in different ways and that's exciting for me. I think that's also one of the coolest things about PCR as a lab technique is that one person can use PCR for in in one in one context, and another scientist can use PCR in a completely different context to solve different problems. Um, and I think that's what makes the multi multifaceted aspect of PCR so fascinating. Oh yeah. Oh totally. Um, I think one other context in which this is done. I mean, like if you're uh, in my family, uh, my mom loves brussels sprouts my dad hates brussels sprouts um and so there's actually i uh we did this experiment in high school where uh like they had we had uh everyone take this like little like piece of paper that has a really bitter chemical on it and uh taste it to see if you could actually taste the chemical some people could taste it some people couldn't some people could taste it a little bit i could taste it a little bit um and the um, it turns out there's actually a gene that um, helps determine whether you can taste this specific bitter chemical well or not. And if you have like every since everyone has two copies of each gene, one from your mom, one from your dad. Um, if you have one copy with the mutation, um, you get like kind of a middle ability to taste. If you have two copies with the mutation, um, I believe you're not able to taste. If you have uh, two copies of the gene but no mutations, you don't taste at all. Um, if I am, I am I mixing this up, Sam? Or I, I've honestly every time I've done it, I've completely forgotten whether or not the gene is a mutant or not. <laughs> yeah, this well... is like I, I will confess that like this is this is the thing that like this is like the canonical thing that you test for in a lab, mm -hmm. like, like like a teaching lab. Um, like, canonical. Like, this is like, like this is the, the this is the easy thing you can test at a lab because it doesn't involve like you know like. A, say doing like full genotyping on somebody but like like so you know another thing like pcr is used for is like crime scene investigation and there are like specific parts of the genome that depending on how long that copy is you can tell the difference between people but i think it would freak out someone in uh 
like, you know, if, if I, we were teaching someone something, it would be freak them out to be like, yeah, so uh, we're just going to do exactly the same thing the crime scene investigation does. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, we just, we just, we can, if you ever commit a crime, though, we've got this DNA here. That's specifically what they're looking for. So, you know, just don't, you know, don't murder anybody. Don't bleed on any crime scenes. You'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and instead, we go for this really innocuous thing. Yeah. Um, and that couldn't really be used to identify anything. We all, yeah. Yeah. It's... It's a, it's a thing. Uh, it's a thing. And it, it's, it's a fun thing because, um, yeah, it's like it's really easy to tell. Usually, like, even if you wanted to pretend you can't taste it, it tastes apparently foul to people who can taste it. I can't, and I enjoy Brussels sprouts, so <laughs> I can't taste the thing. I love Brussels but, sprouts, so. Yeah. I, um, yeah. Just one quick thing to clarify, though. Like, the reason we're talking about this in the context yeah. of PCR is because well, you, you don't I, want to talk about Brussels sprouts for the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, I know just coming, kind of bringing it back. Um, the, Eat your vegetables, is, kids. It's <laughs> because um, you actually can uh, design primers to um, only like stick to the DNA. If you have like the mutation or if you don't have the mutation. And so if you like, depending on the primer you design. Um, Sam and I have actually done this at a workshop where we worked with people. I, I haven't designed these primers, uh, though. Yeah, well, well, don't, we don't put that on we me. We didn't design the primers. Primer design. We did me. the experiment. Um, yeah. Where you basically, like, if you have this mutation, it you uh, don't get a PCR and it, or to work. And if you do have the mutation, you, you, you don't get the PCR to work. So um, it uh, when we did this back in, like, 2019... It was a really cool experience because we actually brought in people from like no, like from all around well, the community. Well, and oh, go, go ahead, Sam. I think I'll more accurately, in. we brought in the PCR equipment. So we have a, a mutual friend who yeah. actually does a bunch of outreach with this sort of stuff, mm -hmm. who is very cool and was willing to let us uh, have this little experiment where um, we just had like some random people from uh, Boston uh, come to a community center. We uh, took the took plopped down a whole PCR lab on a community center table. Because uh, these things, at this point, the gels and the piece, the thermocyclers and everything, they're small enough you could fit them in a couple of backpacks and, I don't know, take them on the train. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how she brought them, but I, I she might have driven. But um, I think she took I think she took the subway. Yeah, it's not implausible. These things are small. The same instruments were also blasted into space. I think she was involved in that, too. But, mm. um, you know, like on the International Space Station, they're light. Uh, they're easy to use. And so we just had some people who had never picked up a pipette, which used to measure like stuff in... A lab they'd never done any of this before and they uh, went and did pcr they all hung out and we did pcr at a community center which was fun although we forgot how long pcr takes so that was that was a little bit of an issue but besides the waiting um it's not hard it's not hard to do pcr at all actually provided you remember all the parts and you're patient um yeah. and someone made the primers primer yeah. design is hard yeah. um that's what the cdc screwed up early on in the pandemic as they decided to make their own primers and they didn't do a good job of it um, I think it was the CDC. Yeah. To... Uh, well, let, maybe we should we should validate that a little bit. But I, I've heard stories yeah. about that too. Yeah, I think um, well, I, mean, I, I definitely the World Health Organization put out a recipe, um, and the CDC decided not to follow it. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of uh, politics going on there that we don't need to get into. But essentially, um, the primers are hard though. Primers are hard, and sometimes they look like they're going to work, and they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also cheap, so they look like they're going to work. They don't, but eh, what's 20 bucks? Um, and so I'm sure they made that decision, and it just 
had a couple little glitches here and there because getting a primer to work consistently is actually very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's not easy, but actually running the experiment once the primers are found is really easy. Yeah. Uh, I think I just want to clarify that. Um, and so it was super fun to just have some people who'd never done it before do PCR. And I don't know, I would love to be able to arrange that again, frankly. It was, it was really cool. Um, uh, I know that a lot of people there got much more interested in science because any of you listening, um, for the most part, could probably run a PCR. Oh, uh, if you can totally. bake cookies, you can run a PCR. I, I would say baking cookies is harder. Sometimes you burn them. <laughs> Sometimes they're like... True. like I, I've messed up cookies. I've also messed up PCRs, but usually it's from like flat out forgetting something, which I guess is more obvious with cookies. If you forget the flour, you just have a pile of wet goo. True. Um, whereas if you have... If you have... Forget the nucleotides, you have a slightly less volume in your tiny, tiny tube. Um, uh, so... I guess it's easier to forget stuff, but uh, they'll also make, like, mixes and stuff. So I think, like, when they're running the COVID test, they tend to be, like, already pre-set up. Um, And, uh, yeah, and I think there's a lot of different ways we can run it. So there's a lot of different ways you can kind of uh, both visualize the results, but also, like, to run the thermocyclers. I once found um, instructions online for how to run a, a... uh, th- like how to build a thermocycler using like a very simple like microprocessor and a, just an incandescent light bulb back when those were a thing you could just buy <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I've also seen like the DNA gels that you used to see how much DNA there is I've seen instructions for building them out of Legos uh, which cool. I mean it, the, the there's a dramatic irony that I think everyone listening is missing with the massive pile of Legos behind me I could definitely build a gel box <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah I think uh the long and short of this whole this whole thing is that like there we have a lot of complex science that uh, a lot of people have worked to really really refine and uh, make quick and easy for a lot of people. And if you're interested in getting involved in science or like getting a little taste of like what molecular biology is like, this this really is something that is easy to do if you have the materials. And I think that that's the big limitation. Um, but it's something that really anyone is capable of. And um, so if you're if you're thinking like science might not be for you, like give give a give it a little taste, see see or, what it's what it's like just, first. Yeah. If you happen, I know that there's hacker spaces too. I don't know if they exist <laughs> much anymore, but they, there's definitely people out there who have the equipment for this. It's not particularly expensive or difficult. Um, and so like PCR, it's easy. It's relatively cheap. It's safe, provided you don't burn yourself. I don't. <laughs> I don't think that there's much you could do with pcr that would be dangerous frankly i mean unless you went and did something dangerous with it but that's kind of like saying like oh you know you it's it's i'd say it's less dangerous than a hammer you, know, <laughs> you still need a second part to hurt somebody with it um which i think is really cool that you have this technique out there that like it's really accessible and people have been teaching people how to like do it in like high school and stuff and i hope that like that expands because i think that there's a lot of like confusion and fear and things around like dna and like working with it um and it's, it's really like easy and safe and simple um uh and like that was how i got introduced to biology is actually the same program the same uh mutual friend uh, joan uh, uh my i mean <laughs> i mean she, she's someone who was a mutual friend of uh some teachers at our high school actually um so like to have that introduction to uh biochemistry was in molecular biology like open the door like oh i can do this Mm -hmm. like uh it's really cool to be able to say oh i can do this thing and like yeah it's exactly the same thing that 
you'd be doing to do things like run a, you know, a COVID test or, you know, investigate what DNA is left on a crime scene or anything else like that. And it's, it's super cool how accessible this sort of stuff is. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I guess maybe we'll just wrap things up here um, before we, before we close. Um, I think it'd be, uh, just a little a little plug for some more of our prior content. If you're interested in learning more about DNA and RNA and viruses and things like that, I might suggest that uh, you you uh, check out our "What Is a Virus" video on YouTube. Um, it talks a little bit about just how these building blocks of biology work. Um, goes in a little more depth than we talk about here. Um, but yeah, I think uh, oh, go ahead, Sam. I was going to say, and also like subscribe to our social media. Um, I, I know Natalie's been working uh, hard on putting out a lot of uh, stories, mm -hmm. and a lot of them actually do involve techniques like PCR, and they uh, are written in a relatively accessible way. So um, if you're interested in this sort of thing, we're constantly sharing articles and interesting content, and I think if you're on the lookout for it, you'll find that a lot of these techniques are all over the place. Yeah, feel free to DM me too with suggestions, topic ideas, things you want to hear. I'm all ears. Yeah, we'd love if you uh, get in touch in whatever way. Um, although I don't believe we have a telegraph, so we can't get Morse code, but try, try, try whatever. <laughs> if you're that <laughs> ambitious, we believe in you. <laughs> yeah, you want to like put up smoke signals? I don't know those either. Um, semaphore? I guess I could Google it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> whatever. Well, yeah. everyone, thank you for listening.